Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The World Ahead. This future-gazing podcast series considers the big themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is out now. Over eight episodes, we're debating the key questions that will prepare you for 2023. This week, we're considering the year ahead for China. It started to relax its zero-COVID policy and also faces slowing economic growth and rising geopolitical tensions with America. As President Xi Jinping begins his third five-year term, China's path forward is uncertain. Will its health system be able to cope with an exit wave of COVID cases? Are China's days of rapid catch-up growth behind it? And how might the war in Ukraine change China's calculus on Taiwan, the democratic island it claims as its own? Getting into all of this today, we have a panel of three of The Economist's China experts. Alice Su is our senior China correspondent and host of our weekly podcast on China, Drum Tower, and she joins us from Taiwan. Roger McShane is our China editor, and our senior Asia correspondent, Dom Ziegler, is in Singapore. Hello to you all. Hi, Tom. Hey, Tom. Hello, Tom. Right, let's start with the relaxation of COVID restrictions. Roger, we've said that Xi Jinping's missteps have turned a health crisis into a political one. Why is that? Yeah, well, let's let's start with the fact that for most of the pandemic, the zero COVID policy, it, it allowed China to have one of, if not the lowest death rate from COVID in the world, at least for a big country, and, and also to maintain pretty steady economic growth. Now, the means by which it accomplished this was sort of a lot of testing, some pretty intrusive monitoring, harsh restrictions, and at times, uh, big lockdowns. The thing was that until recently, you know, only a minority of Chinese people got caught up in the harshest controls. Most Chinese people were able to lead relatively normal COVID-free lives. So if you think of it as sort of a a utilitarian experiment, it was broadly working. And I I think it's fair to say, Alice, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. that it it was broadly popular for the first two years of the pandemic. But, you know, then comes along Omicron, this highly transmissible variant, and that changes things because it, you know, it spread so quickly that more and more people were getting caught up in the controls. So either getting locked down or hauled off to isolation centers because you know, either they had COVID or were near someone who had COVID or, or even just near someone who was near someone who had COVID. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, you know, the web was catching more and more people. And this was causing a lot of frustration. Um, and it was also causing the economy to suffer. So that's why you saw these sort of small but rather startling protests against zero COVID in November. And I, I wouldn't say those led directly to the lifting of the policy, but I, I, you know, I think they were sort of more of a symptom of the fact that the policy was unsustainable. And I think the government realized that. Now, you know, here's where the politics comes in. It's not easy for the Communist Party or Xi Jinping to just do a U-turn on policy, right? They'd have to admit that they actually did something wrong and and the party doesn't really like doing that. And it's even harder with a policy like zero COVID, which is one of Xi Jinping's trademarks. It wasn't so long ago that he was saying lines like perseverance is victory and that China was fighting a people's war against the virus and and that state media was sort of lauding zero COVID, holding it up almost as a way to sort of take a shot at at Western governments. You know, the the Chinese government, it would say, you know, cared about people's lives and their health in a way that Western governments 
just didn't. So now what happens to, to all that messaging? And, and you know, if you sort of continue with this metaphor of, of the people's war, the government has just sort of left the front lines and, and sort of really is now down to the people to fight COVID. And, you know, it's even worse than that because it, it left the front lines and it didn't really prepare the people first. Well, actually, I was going to ask about that because we have seen other countries exit from a zero COVID strategy and Taiwan would be a a good example. Alice, how does what Taiwan did show us what China could have done differently? I'm glad you asked, Tom, because I was just thinking Taiwan is a very good example of both how zero COVID can work and it it did work for multiple different countries in the beginning stages of the COVID pandemic. But When the Omicron variant came out and COVID became more contagious, countries that were living under zero COVID had to shift. And the big difference between China and all the other countries that have used the zero COVID policy is that zero COVID is essentially supposed to buy you time, right? So you're supposed to use that time to roll out vaccination campaigns, to prioritize the most vulnerable people, which which is the elderly, and to prepare medical capacity, ICU bed capacity in your medical system, because you know that eventually when the virus starts to spread, there will be many more cases and there will be much more demand So in in Taiwan, I came to Taiwan a few months ago and happened to arrive here after two years of zero COVID in China. I came into zero COVID in Taiwan and got here right when when this place was transitioning out of that policy. And there's a change in the messaging where people are being told, yes, the virus is spreading, but the majority of cases are mild. Don't go to the hospital if you have a mild case. And that's a very big deal because uh, in Taiwan and in China, you know, for a long time, the general feeling was, you know, if you have COVID, it's really bad. You need to go to the hospital. there was this big campaign to, you know, get mild cases, to stay home, to prioritize hospital space for the really severe cases, to provide medication, but also to make sure that people don't overwhelm the pharmacies with demand. There was a vaccination campaign that had been taking place for years <laughs> before, even with much better preparation and with this clear prioritization of keeping the hospital space for the most severe cases, they did still struggle. And I think, you know, Taiwan managed the transition, but but it was still tough. It was still politically tough and there were still deaths. So Taiwan, in some ways, is almost the best case scenario of, of transitioning out. And then now we're looking at China and it's like China is trying to to make that transition now, but without the months or even years of, of preparation, they're essentially trying to squeeze all of that preparation into a matter of weeks. And another big difference is, the, of course, that Taiwan did use the Western mRNA vaccines, which China refuses to use. Yeah, that's true. And the mRNA vaccines, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk to experts in China about this, they will say, you know, Chinese leaders see it as a matter of national security. Uh, they don't want to rely on something made by foreigners to, you know, to guarantee that their way out of the pandemic. But then at the same time, you see that this has really handicapped their capacity to, to respond to the pandemic. But another interesting point, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief, and I, we did a, an episode on COVID recently on, on Drum Tower. And we were talking to Ben Cowling, who's an epidemiologist at Hong Kong University. And one very interesting point he made was that, you know, the Chinese vaccines, that they're not as effective as the mRNA vaccines, but they, they do work. At least they, they can prevent deaths or really severe cases. And, and if China did take advantage of its time to give three shots to every elderly person to fully vaccinate and boost them, that would make a very, very big difference. So yes, the refusal to use mRNA vaccines was, it's made things more difficult for China, but, but also just in general, the, the slowness of vaccination 
that's something that I think even we are still struggling to understand. And it's, it's the question that comes up again and again. You know, China is a state that is so good at coercing people to, to do what it wants. And it was able to lock up millions of people in their homes for months and, and to do all these extreme things. And yet they didn't force people to get vaccinated. You know, why is that? And I think it's still something that confuses a lot of us. Dom, how is this seen across the region and what impact does it have? Well, the Chinese government's abandoning of, of its zero COVID strategy has been so rapid that conversations are still evolving in the region about quite what it means. I, I think it's playing out in three dimensions. One is perhaps the most obvious fact in the rest of Asia is that there haven't been any Chinese tourists for over two years. And Chinese tourism is incredibly important to the economies of Thailand, to Angkor Wat in Cambodia, and even in more prosperous markets like Japan, where there had been a great surge in Chinese tourism and spending before the pandemic. There's a second dimension, which is what does China's exiting of zero COVID mean for its own economy and for the supply chains that link it to the rest of Asia? And certainly here, um, although there's generally guarded optimism about a recovering Chinese economy, there's also concern what happens if the rate of infections is so rapid that actually from within China, there's a supply shock that people catching COVID in great numbers actually hampers even more some of the production that has been notably slow to date. So businesses with manufacturing or supply chains in, into China are starting to worry about that. It certainly doesn't kind of clear the economic cloud of uncertainty that's been hanging over China for quite some time. And then I guess, thirdly, there are the sort of political uh, or geopolitical implications of abandonment, and in particular implications of the widespread popular protests against not just the government's COVID strategy starting in late November, but actually against President Xi Jinping himself in ways that kind of throw up all sorts of questions about what his power will look like in his second decade at the pinnacle. So the questions that are starting to be asked elsewhere in Asia are, does this extraordinary, unprecedented challenge to Xi Jinping's dominance mean that he pulls in his horns and he tries to address you know, the domestic challenges to, to his rule and to his legitimacy? Or might he be tempted to seek a kind of adventurism abroad to distract attention from his problems at home? If it's the latter, well, then certainly the region would be worried. Well, that neatly sets us up for the next two things we're going to talk about, which are the economy and foreign policy. So let's let's go back to the economy. The COVID policy wasn't the only thing that's been hampering Chinese growth recently, was it, Roger? Yeah, China faced other economic challenges. It's dealing with a, a crisis in the property sector, which uh, accounts for a huge part of the economy, something like a, a fifth of GDP. That was precipitated by a, a crackdown on the excesses of, of the property industry. And, and, you know, some of it was well-intentioned. It was an attempt to ensure that developers had healthier balance sheets. But it also forced a lot of them to stop borrowing and sell down assets and, and sort of limited their ability to continue building. And you know, somewhat similarly, the, the government over the past couple of years has, has cracked down on the tech sector, some of the giants of the sector. And it's really gone after big names like Tencent, which is a big 
gaming and social media company and Alibaba, which is a, a big e-commerce company. And th- these companies were like gold mines for investors for years. And then suddenly the government was laying down these, these new blueprints to sort of reshape their industries. And, and that sort of goes to a, a bigger point. Xi Jinping is rewriting the rules for how the economy works. He has sketched out this vision for a more socialist, state-controlled economy. And he, he thinks the Communist Party should have more of a say in how businesses are run. And you know, this has and, and it will continue to really dent the dynamism of the, of the private sector. The last thing I think I'd point to is just the demographic challenge that China faces. In 2023, India will probably overtake it as the uh, most populous country in the world. The more important point is that for years, China's workforce has been shrinking. So obviously, that's not great for economic growth, and it puts a huge burden on on young people. If you look at the birth rate, it's well below what is needed to um, keep the population stable, let alone what is needed to have it be growing again. So all of these factors that are slowing down Chinese growth, people are now starting to say that China's economy may now never overtake America's in size, something that was once seen as inevitable. Do you think that sort of long-term prediction is plausible? And does it matter if that's true? Yeah, I mean, I think you're hearing that from you know, a growing number of economists. And I think a lot of it comes back to that sort of what you think of Xi's new vision for the economy and how that's going to affect growth. It should be said that these predictions, while they were sort of widely held, they've gone wrong before. Japan's economy was expected to overtake America's. Even Russia's was at some point well in the past. I think China would be sort of a pretty big outlier if it continued to grow at anywhere between 5 and 10% while the population was declining. That would be highly unusual. And I should add that China also has a debt problem to contend with, and, and that's going to make things even even more dicey. But even with growth of 2 to 3% a year, China could still become the world's largest economy. It would just happen much further into the future. And it sort of speaks to why I don't think this is sort of a great measure of strength, because even if China does overtake uh, America's economy in this sense, America would still be much more prosperous and productive on a per-person basis. The openness of the American economy, the dominance of the dollar, you know, these would likely mean that America maintains more influence than China. Look, it would be a propaganda win for China, and the Communist Party loves that. On your question about, you know, does, does it matter if China's economy overtakes America's in size, and when does it matter? I, I'd like to offer the thought that the problem with China's rise, or the, the reason why it causes so much alarm um, in, in the region and in the world, it's not so much about the size of China's economy as it is about how China wields its power, right? Because for a long time, China was growing at a remarkable pace, and that was very good for, for most of the world and for the global economy. But I think the reason why China's growing strength has caused alarm is because of the way that the Chinese state has moved away from its past stance of biding time and hiding your strength. And they have come out to really use economic coercion, to use this sort of wolf warrior diplomacy where they say, you know, now we're big guys, <laughs> you know, and now you need to listen to us. And if if you, Australia or America, or whoever you are, if you, if you want to do something that 
challenges what we consider our core interests, we're going to use our economic strength to punish you for that. And I think especially in 2022, after we saw what happened with the war in Ukraine and we saw you know, what Russia could do to Europe in terms of building up a reliance on re- Russian energy and then, and then seeing, okay, now you thought it was fine to, to rely on Russia, but now Russia can use that to, to punish you. That is what pe- why people are alarmed about China's economic strength. It's not simply, oh, you know, China's rising and it's going to be richer than America, but it's China's getting so strong and they want to make everyone else dependent on them so that then whatever actions they take, they will be able to raise the stakes for other countries and say, you, don't you dare try to punish us for doing something like invading an island or whatever it may be, because we could then strangle your economy. It's a matter of how they're using that power. OK, thank you, everyone. We'll be back in a moment to look at geopolitical tensions, including with America. But first, a quick reminder. If you don't already have a subscription to The Economist, you're missing out. For unlimited access to our journalism, including our coverage of China, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. This is The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage and I'm talking to my colleagues Alice Sue, Roger McShane and Dom Ziegler about the outlook for China in 2023. When it comes to foreign policy, one of the big questions is how Russia's invasion of Ukraine might change China's calculus on Taiwan. Roger, you can make a case that the war in Ukraine makes a Chinese move on Taiwan more likely or less likely. So what are the arguments in each case? I think the question of sort of war over Taiwan turns on whether China thinks it would win that war. Obviously, as China grows stronger, as it modernizes its military, the risk increases. But yeah, look, the war in Ukraine is obviously going to affect its its calculus here. I think the hope in America and Taiwan is that China will see how Ukraine has become this sort of unexpected quagmire for Russia. Perhaps officials in in Beijing will, will draw comparisons and think that um, taking Taiwan is a much riskier bet than they had thought. I, I think China's generals already think it would be a pretty uh, risky bet. Maintaining a, a maritime invasion across uh, 160 kilometers of water isn't an easy thing, um, especially not if America gets involved and, and Joe Biden has promised that it would get involved. You know, the generals in Washington really hope that the war in Ukraine convinces Taiwan to show a greater willingness to defend itself to increase its military budget and adopt a better strategy in our in our leader pages, we've talked about um, Taiwan adopting a, a porcupine strategy that would make it hard for China to digest. And that would involve it using more mobile and concealable defensive weapons, especially things like missiles that could be used against uh, ships and planes. But to this point, Taiwanese generals seem to prefer fancy jets and ships and submarines, the type of stuff that would probably get blown up in the uh, early stages of a war with China. The argument for how this might lead to a war, I think it's pretty straightforward, but I think it has less to do with Ukraine. I think it has a lot to do with the state of things in China and how China has changed over, over the past decade. It's become a lot more nationalistic than it was 10 years ago. Xi Jinping craves unification. He, he has placed a great deal of emphasis on it. He sees Taiwan drifting away from the mainland. Taiwan is a vibrant democracy led by a president from a party that favors independence. Taiwan is much more prosperous than the mainland on a, on a per-person basis, and its people enjoy you know, many more freedoms. So unification with a communist-led mainland isn't really something the Taiwanese people want. 
And if you look at it one way, you know, that could force the Communist Party's hand. There's actually a law in China that compels its rulers to act militarily if they believe peaceful unification is no longer possible. That's obviously a very subjective assessment, but you have to ask whether we're getting to that point. Okay, Alice, how does all of this look from Taiwan and how has the conflict in Ukraine changed attitudes, if at all? Well, when the war in Ukraine started, there were questions coming from, I think, around the world about whether Taiwan would be the next Ukraine or, you know, the Ukraine of Asia, if you will. And and people are asking that here in Taiwan, too. I think what's very interesting about Taiwan is that if you look at the public opinion polling, there is very, very strong Taiwanese identity. There's only a tiny, you know, minority of people who who are, you know, still pro-unification. And, and especially after seeing what happened to Hong Kong in 2019, and after seeing how the party has governed under Xi Jinping, I think public opinion in Taiwan is more resistant to Communist Party rule than ever. But what is missing in Taiwan is, you know, a vibrant public debate about how to avoid that scenario and how to make sure that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't come over. What is our defense strategy? What are the weapons that Taiwan's military is buying? Are they effective? Are they the right weapons? How are they going to be used? There actually isn't much debate going on here. And there are a few members of civil society who are trying to spark that debate and trying to get people involved and get people questioning, hey, you know, what is the national plan here? But but so far, it's still not very much in public consciousness. And, and that is a big problem because, you know, when I speak with American officials, they talk about how, you know, the U.S., as, as Roger said, you know, Biden has made pretty clear that the U.S. wants to support Taiwan and it will help Taiwan. But in the scenario where there is an actual China move on Taiwan, America will need Taiwan to survive for at least a few weeks, right? But if you look at what the military actually has, at most, they can hold out for a couple of days. And so I think there's a lot of frustration there from the American side on, you know, why, why isn't Taiwan preparing more? And so the problem, though, I think is that I've heard Taiwanese people say this is a conflict between China and the U.S. Like, we shouldn't be involved. This is a superpower showdown, and it's not fair to force us to be part of it. But this is Taiwan. Like, you know, like it or not, you will be involved. And in fact, you you are the battlefield. And you, you can't just say, you know, this is up to them, and it doesn't have anything to do with us. In Taiwan, there's this sentiment that the chip industry is the silicon shield. It protects Taiwan. It makes Taiwan matter on the global stage. And if people won't fight for Taiwan's democracy, they will care about their iPhones. So, you know, they 90% of the most advanced chips in the world are being made here. But then at the same time that there's this, you know, hope being placed on the semiconductor industry, Taiwan is also right in the middle of this U.S.-China tech war. And you can see that, you know, TSMC is building fabs in Arizona. And it's not only building fabs, but is committing to building really advanced three nanometer chips in the U.S. and is moving workers over there. And a bunch of other Taiwanese companies are also moving over there to help America to, you know, revitalize its manufacturing. And that is also something controversial here. There are people who who are saying, you know, that's the Silicon Shield. Oh, no, like, is it being moved away? you know, what's going to protect us now. But for me, you know, however important the chip industry is, I think what matters more is Taiwan showing that it can and it will defend itself and it will at least try. Dom, Taiwan isn't the only possible flashpoint for China and other countries, though, is it? No, it's not, Tom. And there are actually several possible flashpoints. And what they have in common, all of them, is that they're leftovers from history, sometimes quite old history. In the case of Taiwan, it all has to do with territory and 
the history of Japan's aggression in the first part of the 20th century, including its invasion of China and its occupation, colonialization of, of Taiwan. And then think about the Korean peninsula, which we haven't mentioned yet. It's divided thanks to an armistice ending three years of war in the early 1950s. And one of the consequences of Putin's invasion of Ukraine is that it has pushed China closer, not only to Russia, but also to North Korea. And that has a bearing on stability in the region, because it's very likely sometime soon, Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, will test another nuclear weapon, the first since 2017. And the question is what China would do about it in terms of reigning North Korea back. The odds are that it won't do much, and, and that this will test relations between the US and China. The East China Sea, China claims the Senkaku Islands, which are controlled by Japan, and it also wants to dominate the South China Sea, in part to kind of echo what it wants to do in sort of neo-imperial terms, in being at the centre of, of an order in East Asia. It wants to echo that uh, militarily. And then another leftover from history, uh, which actually goes back to the start of the 20th century, is a disputed three and a half thousand kilometre long border between China and India. And it's certainly the case that neither side wants to see conflict there. President Xi Jinping has enough on his plate not to add another challenge or problem to his already significant pile. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India knows that India would be outgunned uh, up in the Himalayas. Nevertheless, incidents have a tendency to keep happening. In 2020, there was a deadly high-altitude brawl in which two dozen soldiers, Chinese and Indians, were killed. This brawl took place above a river gorge, not using guns. The, the border is so sensitive that day-to-day -day the soldiers are not armed. And then more recently, in early December, there was a similar but less bloody incident. These things have a tendency to happen. I think the risk is less of intentional confrontations than of accidents waiting to happen without the means to wind down tensions. OK, so challenges on many fronts for China in 2023. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. So thank you, Alice. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Dom. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about what to expect in the coming year in China and beyond in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2023. Next week, we'll be looking at how countries will deal with demographic changes in the coming year, something we've touched on today. This episode was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer is Tom Pooley and the executive producer is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. Yeah.